Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Privileged to be preaching to you all this morning. Well, if you all have your Bibles, we are in Romans 15. If you all want to turn there, and we will be covering verses 1 through 13. Uh, it's a privilege to be back up here. A couple weeks ago, I was up here on this platform uh, asking for you all to pray for our high schoolers and our volunteers as we left for Camp Tapawingo that afternoon. And we asked prayers for unity and endurance among the team that went to serve. Uh, and we also ask for prayers for the campers that came, that they may hear the gospel, that they receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And as we returned last Saturday, uh, I can say that our week at Camp Tapawingo was incredibly successful. First of all, we only had to take one high schooler to the emergency room. Just one. <laughs> That's great. We usually expect at least one, and if we know that certain students are coming on the trip, we just go ahead and find the closest hospital and the quickest route to, to get there just to plan ahead. Uh, but it was only one, so that's a win for us. And just to clarify, the student is recovering, right? He served the rest of the week with us and uh, should be on the road to recovering to full strength. Uh, secondly, our team stayed together, and we endured in our serving even when things are difficult. Uh, on a trip like this, a lot of plans change. We're all taken out of our comfort zones. And on top of all of that, most of us are serving while also experiencing, experiencing spiritual warfare, facing discouragement when things aren't going well, uh, questioning if God really wanted us there to begin with, or whether or not he's really going to use us on a trip like this. And it was such an awesome privilege to see that our team of high school students stayed together instead of becoming divided, and we still served even when times were hard. They trusted in God, and they sought the service and the pleasing of others around them instead of seeking to please themselves. And ultimately, the trip was incredibly successful because as of that Thursday, we were told that 15 to 20 kids at that camp had come to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Yes. Yes. And when we heard that news, and as we continue to reflect on that this morning, we can't help but give all the praise and all the glory to God in that. Short-term mission trips are hard. They're hard because the very decision to even go involves not pleasing ourselves, but to seek to serve and please others. Our high schoolers, our volunteers, could have done anything else that week, but they instead decided to go to a camp where it was incredibly hot, where they don't have their cell phones on them most of the time, and ultimately where their faith is going to be stretched like it's never been before. But by God's grace, they left behind their preferences to go and to serve him so that these kids might see Jesus for the first time, and so that they may worship this God for who he truly is. Short-term mission trips are not only challenging for those reasons, the Christian life as a whole presents those same challenges. It can be hard because as we decide to follow Jesus, we deny ourselves and what we think pleases us, and we leave behind those old lives to go and to follow Jesus. And from that point on, when we come to Jesus, we are saying to God, my life, Lord, is for you. It's not for my own pleasures. It's not for my own preferences. 
And while we realize that life with Jesus is the most joyful, most satisfying life we can possibly have, we are also constantly having to remind ourselves that our call in life is to love and build others up before we build up ourselves. And the purpose of that is to glorify God and to point everyone around us to Jesus. And boy, on a daily basis, that is hard, if not impossible, with our own hearts and with our own abilities. But as we see in this passage this morning, we see in this passage that by the grace of God, as our obligations as Christians is to put others ahead of ourselves, we're not left without an example to do this. We are not left without help to do this. And we're also not left without a purpose to do this. Well, the title of our message this morning is Their Good, Our Savior, His Glory. Their Good, Our Savior, His Glory. Well, we see a few takeaways here from this passage. And the first one we see here is our obligation. Our obligation. Over these last two weeks, we have been in Romans 14. And what we have seen is that there appears to have been a dispute going on between Christians regarding Jewish dietary laws, among other things. Uh, these aren't issues of what sin is or what sin isn't, but issues of Christian freedoms that are not really essential to the faith itself. There are those who are described as strong in faith and in their conscience because they know that they no longer need to follow those food laws. And so they can eat meat or drink wine or even not observe the Sabbath day without feeling any kind of conviction about it. And on the other side, there are those who are described as weak in faith and in conscience. Because while they are Christians who do trust in Jesus for salvation, they still feel compelled to only eat vegetables because if they do eat meat or drink wine or see Sabbath as any other day of the week, that may cause them to stumble in their faith and to be reminded of what their old life was before they came to Christ. And so Paul says in chapter 14 that while the strong are in the right, that we as Christians are free to partake in these things without violating God's law, the weak and the strong are not to quarrel with each other and they're not to judge each other regardless of where their conscience is leading them. If you have a sensitive conscience and you don't feel comfortable with all food as a free Christian, then don't eat it. And don't judge those who do feel comfortable to eat all food. And if you have a strong conscience and you understand that all food is clean, then love your weak brother or sister by not despising them for their conscience and love them by not partaking in your Christian liberties around them and risk tearing them down. And so as we get into chapter 15, Paul says to the strong in conscience in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. While there are certain freedoms that we have now as Christians, those with a stronger conscience are obligated. It doesn't say recommended here. It says obligated to bear with the weak in conscience by abstaining from these things, at least in the presence of, the, of our weak brothers and sisters. And the reason for this obligation 
is to prevent the weak in faith from stumbling in their faith. You go back to chapter 14, verse 20. Don't destroy the work of God in someone for the sake of food. It's wrong to make anyone stumble in their faith because of what you eat. And the hope in abstaining from these certain liberties is not so that one day the weak in conscience go to town on a plate of ribs at Famous Dave's. That's not the hope of all of this. The ultimate hope is that both the strong and the weak grow by not despising or judging each other regardless of what they eat or what they don't eat. That's the goal. Unity, harmony amongst Christians. And just as an aside, while the church today may disagree on some non-essential matters, there aren't really any issues that perfectly correlate to the ones here in this passage. Yes, music and dress and even politics are non-essential matters that perhaps Christians may disagree about, but they're not exactly the same as old dietary Jewish laws. But while the issues may not perfectly correlate, the same principle can be applied today in that whether you have no problem participating in certain liberties or if you don't feel comfortable partaking in certain liberties, don't tear each other down or don't judge one another, but do everything for the glory of God. The weak are obligated not to judge the strong because that doesn't build them up. Those who are strong do not cause the weak to stumble because the strong are obligated to bear with the failings of the weak even if it doesn't please the strong. Is it pleasing to drink wine and eat bacon? Perhaps. Maybe not together. That doesn't sound too great. <laughs> but not causing others to stumble and building them up is more important than doing what pleases you. That's the point that Paul's been trying to make over these last two chapters. The problem here is not about disputable, non-essential matters of Christianity. The problem is, are you more concerned with building others up or with pleasing yourself at others' expense? It's not ultimately, can I drink wine or not? It's, am I willing to not have a drink for the sake of a brother or sister's walk with God? Do I desire to please others more than I desire to please myself? And if you look in verse 2, notice how Paul steps away from the strong and weak terminology, and he just puts everyone on the same playing field. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Everyone, each of us. The burden is not just on the strong in faith to build the weak up. The obligation is on all of God's children. We are all obligated to seek to please our neighbor for their good, to build them up, and to not seek to please ourselves and only get what we want. And this applies to all of our life, not just non-essential matters. In situations where pleasing yourself directly correlates with causing a fellow Christian to stumble, you are obligated to choose the good of your brother and sister, even if it means you don't please yourself and get what you want. 
And also, this doesn't mean to be a people pleaser and to seek for others' approval all the time. Lovingly correcting someone might build someone up more than keeping that correction to yourself. (laughs) And on the flip side, having that conversation with them might be less pleasing to you than just holding your tongue and keeping quiet. But it's for the sake of them being built up and becoming more like Jesus. Paul says, don't let your pleasure be more important than their good. And before we move on, I just have to say, I don't know if anyone relates in here, man, I fall short with this. I often think about my own pleasure more than the pleasure in building up of others. To be honest, I can be pretty selfish, be pretty self-centered. I think of Camp Tapawingo. In my worst moments, part of me was thinking, do I really have to go? I mean, I'm going to be away from my own bed, and I'm going to be out in the heat all day, and no matter how much sunscreen I put on, I always somehow get burnt. (laughs) I love our high schoolers, but man, they're a sarcastic bunch. (laughs) As if I'm not, right? And when I get tired, I take their sarcastic comments way too seriously. I know I'm going to have to take at least one kid to the ER, and that's not going to be a fun trip. And I don't want to get climbed on and get my back clawed up by a bunch of kids in the swimming pool. And it could just sound pathetic at times. Woe is me, how long, oh Lord? (laughs) And I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit, but eventually in those moments, a question comes to my mind asking me, Colin, whose life is this? Whose life is this? Is it yours? For your pleasure? Or is it God's life? And is it for his will? As followers of Jesus, our obligation is ultimately to God. And then our next obligation is for the pleasing and building up of others. We love God and we love our neighbor and seek their good, even if it means having to sacrifice what we want. This applies to how we love our spouses, how we love our kids, our parents, and yes, that one brother or sister that you often clash with. And for our next point, Paul describes what this obligation looks like. And we see that in our example. Our example. After Paul describes the obligation of all to seek to please their neighbor and to build them up. He provides Jesus as the ultimate example in fulfilling this obligation. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. If our life belongs to Jesus Christ, then he is our Lord, and that also means that he is the standard of how we live. And so if Christ who is the God and the King of the universe, lived for others rather than living to please himself, if that is who our God is and what he did on this earth, then why would we live with our pleasure being the ultimate focus? Our Lord Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 9 here, And many in the early church would see Psalm 69 as being messianic and describing the life of Jesus. 
And Paul here references this text to show that Jesus didn't seek to please himself during his life, so much so that he even suffered reproaches from people, especially when he was crucified. Jesus could have stayed in the heavens, enjoying his perfect relationship with the Father and not experience any kind of suffering from this world. But instead, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to God even to the point of death. Instead of remaining on his throne, he stepped down to take on a human body and to take on our sin at the cross, not for his pleasure, but for ours and for our salvation. And so Paul brings Jesus in as the primary example of this obligation to say, if Jesus didn't please himself to the point where he gave his life for sinners like you, then you can seek to lift others up and to please them rather than living for yourself. And he continues this thought in verses 7 through 9. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God's faithfulness and God's promises were fully revealed through the humility and the service of Jesus. And as Jesus served for the good of others, he revealed God's truth so that Jews and Gentiles might come to saving faith. It was the service of Jesus. It was the giving of Jesus, of his life, of his body, that opened our eyes up to him to begin with. Us as Gentiles, if it were not for Jesus coming down into seeking our pleasure instead of his, if he did not do that, we wouldn't be here today trusting and walking with him. But he comes down and he reveals himself. And this provides such the ultimate example for us in learning to live for others. Because when Christ's pleasure and Christ's comfort was in jeopardy, he decided to give it all away for the sake of our relationship with God. And because Jesus is the ultimate example of pleasing others, we as Christ followers, living among other Christ followers, can follow the example of Jesus. That if Jesus welcomed you and died for you when you were a sinner, then you can welcome each other even though you might disagree on worship instruments. And if Jesus lifted you up when you were an enemy of God, then you can lift others up for their good and for their spiritual growth. Starting in Romans 12, Paul has taught us that the ways we are to grow in our walks with God is by seeing God's mercy in our lives and by seeing Jesus as the example of a godly life. We love others. We give grace to others because God has loved us and has given us grace so deeply time and time again. And we seek to please others because Jesus pleased others at the expense of pleasing himself. And so as we are obligated to live in this way, God not only gives us our example of living this out, he also gives us our next point, which is our help. 
He gives us our help. He doesn't just give us an example and then walks away. He gives us assistance. Well, I was in the Boy Scouts for like two years when I was a kid. And every year we would have these things called Pinewood Derby races. Where we were supposed to make a car out of a block of wood, plastic wheels, and axles. And for the first year of these races, I was the winner of my pack. And for the second year, I won second place in the entire derby. It was incredible. It was an amazing run. And in the second year, one of my friend's dads came up to me and said, man, Colin, you've had some great Pinewood Derby cars these last couple years. I'm like, oh, thank you, sir. And then he just gets a straight face and says, how do you do it? <laughs> like he's trying to corner me into to having a certain answer. How do you do it? And my answer, I'm seven years old, right? So my answer is, I don't know. It just kind of happens, right? You know, just you roll the car, it goes fast, you know, sorry. But after that, I began to realize something. The reason why I didn't know how I made a great Pinewood Derby car was because I had nothing to do with making my Pinewood Derby car. <laughs> I didn't shape the wood. I didn't put the wheels and the axles together. I didn't sand the car. I don't even know if I painted it or put the stickers on it. You know who took the whole thing on by himself? My dad. I remember when I was a kid and I stayed at his house every other weekend. And while me and my brother are throwing the football out in the front yard, I'm looking over in the garage and my dad is just carving this block of wood in the perfect shape. And so we get to the derby and my dad hands me my car and says, here's your car, son. And I'm like, man, I can really make a great Pinewood Derby car, huh? You know? And then I would just end up smoking everybody with my dad's Pinewood Derby car. Now, is that cheating? Yeah, probably. Right? Probably. I'll admit that. I'll admit that. But here's the point. I was incredibly hopeless to make an amazing Pinewood Derby car without my dad. And you might think, ah, come on, Colin, give yourself some credit. Trust me, it would have been bad. Because it wasn't just that I needed some instruction to make a great Pinewood Derby car. What I needed most was my dad. I needed his abilities. I needed his mind. I needed his tools. I needed his instruction. And without the help of my dad, I guess I could have made something that looks like a car, but it wouldn't have done much. In this passage, Paul calls all of us as Christians to build up one another and to be unified in Jesus. And while he provides us with the example of Jesus, he also acknowledges that we are unable to do what we are called to do without the help of our Father. Verses 4 and 5. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul, first of all, starts here by saying, while God's word was written for the people back then, it's also written for our instruction today. And he says that through God's word, we are given eternal hope 
And we are given that through the endurance and through the encouragement that comes from it. As a Christian, we are in need of daily endurance and we are in need of daily encouragement. Because we're not in a sprint. We are running a marathon. And in the moments where we don't think we can go further and we're striving to build others up as hard, we need to be told along the way, you're almost there. Keep going. Don't give up. You are a child of God. He is going to finish what he started in you. And Paul says here, that's what God's word is for. To encourage you and to give you endurance so that your hope in being forever united with Jesus Christ doesn't fade. But notice what he says in verse 5. The reason why the scriptures help us endure and stay encouraged is because they were written ultimately by the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. The instruction gets its power from the instructor. And we as children of God grow from the power of the instruction because the power comes from our Father. We can read the instructions on our own and do the very best we can to love others and to live in harmony. But with our own hearts and with our own abilities, we will fail. As James said last week, we will eventually begin to divide over petty stuff like what color bricks our next church building should be. Because our heart desperately wants its own way, whatever it takes. And even if we seek to please others and lifting them up, and even if we're doing a decent job at that, we likely have a selfish motive behind it. Because we want people to like us, or to, look how, to see people how good we are. Or we want people to see how smart we are. And that is why we need our Father. Our God of endurance and encouragement, as it says in verse 5, to grant us the ability to live in harmony with each other in a way that lines up with how Jesus lived. It is God who gives us the ability to stay unified. And it is God who helps us give up our own preferences and liberties just as Jesus did the same for us. We were helpless to be saved until Jesus came. And we are helpless now to love others like Jesus loved without the help of our Father. The call here is, as you see how Jesus didn't please himself, depend on God to live in the same way with one another. And depending on God means to stay in relationship with him. It means we talk to him and let him talk to us as we pray to him. It means, as we see in this passage, we let him instruct us and we let him guide us as we remain in his word. And foundationally in our hearts, it means to constantly be reminded of how Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. And to let his love for you fill your heart and to fuel your love and service to other people. But then the question might be, why? 
What's the point of seeking to please others? What's the end goal? What's the end goal of letting go of getting what I prefer? With our final point, we see our purpose. Our purpose. As Paul prays that God may grant us, as his church, the ability to live in harmony with each other, he then gives us the end purpose in verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about it in verse 7. Paul calls Christians to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For what purpose? For the glory of God. And then in verses 9 and 12, 9 through 12, he continues in saying that Jesus became a servant and revealed God's faithfulness in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. What's the purpose of holding loosely to what color our hallway should be? What's the purpose of abstaining from drinking wine in front of someone with a weak conscience? Why should I stop constantly complaining about non-essential matters that in no way compromise the gospel and compromise God's word? Why should I stop being so concerned about whether someone decides to wear a suit or not to church? Why should I not be so stubborn with my family and refuse to do the dishes at home? What is the purpose of seeking to build up my neighbor and not ultimately seek to please myself and get my way? The purpose is to glorify God and to worship him. A church that argues over every little thing. A church where the members do nothing but what pleases themselves. And a church that has no regard for each other is a church that fails to worship God. How can we bring glory to God by arguing all the time? How can we bring glory to God by having no regard for the weak in faith? How can we bring glory to God? By having disdain for those who are strong in certain areas of faith. How can we worship God if we're living completely opposite of how his son lived? As you see with the life of Jesus, living as a servant for the building up of others is a testimony of God's goodness and love. And if we as individual members of the church are only seeking our pleasure, we are hindering our witness to the outside world. Why would someone ever want to come to Jesus if people who claim to belong to him are always arguing over dumb, pointless stuff and are always seeking to get their way? And it's not to say don't have opinions on things. It's not to say don't ever disagree with someone. But it is to say, concern yourself more with pointing people to Jesus than with getting what you want. 
And that if a disagreement on non-essentials is getting in the way of others worshiping God and giving him glory, then let that argument go for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. As we remain in the scriptures and as we continue to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done on the cross for us as Gentiles so that we can praise him and give him glory and to live for him as we continue to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. May God continue to do a work in us to where we say, giving God the glory is way better than pleasing myself. Worshiping the perfect holy God of the universe is way more essential than my freedoms and my preferences. And as you experience as a Christian, worshiping God and building others up and not having primary regard for you getting what you want, that's actually what brings you true joy. (laughs) Jesus teaches that for those who are to know him, you will know that I belong. You, they will know that we belong to Jesus by how we love each other and how we stay with each other. And then he says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and complete. Living a life for the glory of God and for the good of others is so much better than living for ourselves. That fills us with joy. Not giving ourselves the praise, not giving ourselves the glory, not having people look at us and seeing how great we are, but it's looking and seeing and pointing people to how great Jesus is. That is what completes and fulfills us. We belong to a loving and merciful God who gave his only son to die for our sins. And because of that, he deserves my worship. And he deserves everyone's worship. And so at West Park, let us continue striving to be a people who welcomes all believers in Jesus, who have different opinions and sensitivities, just as Christ has welcomed us when we were still sinners, all for the glory and the worship of God. And for those who do not know Jesus, I invite you to look at him today. He is the son of God and the only perfect, sinless human to ever live. And instead of coming to this world to be served, he came to serve. Not to please himself, and he did this so much so that he went to the cross to die for your sins. Realize, it should have been you on the cross instead of Jesus. It should have been you that faces the eternal punishment of death. But Jesus took that punishment for you so that you can have life. And as you come and to trust in Jesus and he gives you eternal life, you are called to live in the same way. To live not to please yourself, but to live to give glory to God and to live to point others to him. I invite you this morning, if you do not know Jesus, he's inviting you, come to him.
Because you can't say he didn't give you everything he had. You can't say God has been silent to you and that he's been giving you the silent treatment. Jesus coming to this world, being crucified for our sins, rising from the dead three days later, that is to actually show God has done far from giving you the silent treatment. He has shown himself to all of creation, shown himself all to humanity, and he's inviting all of us to come to him and to worship him. Jesus has given you everything that he's had. He is asking you to do the same. And as you give yourself to him, give yourself to his people. Build up the brothers and sisters in Christ around you, all for the sake of giving God the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you so much for giving yourself away for us. As the song that we sang earlier, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. You came for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we see, Lord Jesus, how you did not seek to please yourself, and how you came to give us life, how you died to give us life. I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room to give our full selves to you. And then, Lord, as a response, I pray that because we are in the family of God, I pray, Lord, not only that we give all of ourselves to you, we give all of ourselves to each other. That we don't seek to tear down the weak or to despise the strong, that we don't seek to please ourselves at the expense of other people, but, Lord, we seek to build others up and that, Lord, we just take a backseat. This life is all for you and pointing people to you, Jesus, and giving you the glory and the worship that you deserve. And, Lord, we praise you for your amazing love for us, for your amazing grace, and so, Lord, we just give you the glory for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.